1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And on top of that, I would like to remind all of our listeners that the Chainsaw Awards, the annual uh, horror uh, awards ceremony that Fangoria throws each year, is currently uh, open for voting. If you go to Fangoria.com backslash vote, you can vote up through February 27th at 11 59 p.m. to cast your ballots for your preferred uh, horror movies, TV shows, actors, actresses, directors, what have you. Head on over there and uh, get involved. It's the Chainsaw Boards, baby. With all that said, let's get on with that show, shall we? Hi. My name is Stephen King. Sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today's guest is a very funny comedian, author, podcaster, and producer who you'll know from his well-read and putting on airs podcasts, as well as his many social media and news appearances where he brings the fire to conservative politics as the liberal redneck. He's about to embark on a crazy year-long comedy tour across the United States, but first he's stopping by the KingCast to talk a little bit about Stephen King's The Mist. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Trey Crowder to the KingCast stage. What's up, fellas? Thanks for having me. Uh, I do have a question real quick. Um, oh, yes. Sure. Cussing and everything on this? How Where are we at on it? Oh, and yeah, absolutely. Vulgarity and stuff? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Because I just, I feel like I can't not say this. So, Scott, right? I don't think I've ever encountered anybody else with the name Wampler. And yeah. uh, you don't, I'm. there's no way you have any kind of, or had any kind of relative whose name was Ollie. Right, I'm assuming Ollie Wampler. You ever heard that name before? I have not, but I okay. understand that the uh, Wampler people are based out of the Virginia region of the country. And well, this have... was in East Tennessee, so that kind of tracks. I don't know him either, but I saw. <laughs> this is why I didn't know if I should bring it up or not. But I've I've saw this bathroom graffiti in a dingy <laughs> gas station bathroom outside Knoxville, Tennessee, probably. 16 years ago and uh-huh. i've never forgotten it because all it said was ollie wampler sucks dicks s-u-x <laughs> s-u-x-d-i-x right and that's and that's all it said and i've i've never met ollie i don't know anything about ollie but like i've remembered him my whole life oh, and you're the ollie, only oh like o-l-l-y yeah, oh, yeah, wasn't, wasn't oh, that yeah, your that's nickname my, in, the, yeah, in that's college? My, that's my, well, that was my grandfather. Oh, Wait, yeah. okay. no, you're kidding. No, you I'm, yeah, I'm fucking with Okay, you. all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, all right. Uh, you're like, yeah, my reputation preceded me, but yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that's my stage name. Yeah, <laughs> you're the only other Wampler I've run into, and as soon as I saw it, just immediately made me think of Ali and his, uh, you know, proclivities or 
or whatever. So yeah, I know that. Yeah, I'm, I, we're, I am of course not here to judge all these proclivities. Uh, no, I, I do know the Wamplers are a rambunctious bunch, um, and uh, are uh, yeah, I the ones that I've met, like from my dad's side of the family, uh, wasn't a huge fan of them. Honestly, yeah, um, they're you know they're they're deep woods folk. Um, right. And uh, like raised. Don't some of them have some like sausage money too. Do you know there what I'm is talking? some sausage money yeah, going around? I thought I so. want a piece of that. You know, every yeah. once in a while, someone you will get tweet on a, sausage money. Yeah. Someone will tweet a photo of the Wampler's hot sausage at me from a store. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm always very flattered by it because it's true. Yeah. I always wondered if the graffiti er was like a rival sausage man or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was just a, a stray, a stray bullet fired in the sausage, the East Tennessee sausage wars or something. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to say. It does happen. You mm-hmm. know? Well, Trey, I wanted to one thank you for coming on the show. This is really cool to me uh, because you helped me a lot during the very dark days of, uh, of 2016 um, and, uh, we would have thought that that would have been the, the worst of it, but, uh, but here <laughs> we are. Um, but yeah, when you kind of came on the, the scene, it was so nice, especially as somebody I I've lived in, in Texas since I was 12. So I, I'm technically a California transplant, but don't hold that against me. But, uh, I feel like I've been here long enough to be accepted as one of their own. And it's as somebody who has spent most of his life in the South in a very, you know, liberal area and have met a lot of good old, you know, boy, you know, uh, uh, liberal people. That's not the image that people get. So when you kind of came out and especially with the, the way that you can break down, um, politics and class politics and stuff in a funny way, it was exactly what I needed, you know, uh, when the world seemed to be falling apart in 2016. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I wanted to get that off my chest. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but yeah, I, you know, I was very aware of that, what you said about that, not being the stereotype. And you, if you ever heard a Southern accent, it was always the same type of thing in any kind of media, you know, pretty much. And Mm -hmm. then when I like first went viral in 2016, I got a lot like supportive and positive messages, but a lot of messages from people on the coast or people out West or wherever, way outside the South that were basically saying some version of like, Oh, it's like seeing a unicorn, you know, like, <laughs> like li- I didn't know that people like you existed and, and also implying like I'm literally the only one and, and that type of thing. <laughs> genuinely didn't know that, you know, uh, Southern liberals or however you want to put it existed, which is of course ridiculous. They're the minority, but there's still, when you put all the States together, there's, you know, pretty good, pretty good bunch of them. So yeah. Yeah. When I moved to Austin, we had a democratic governor pre George Bush. It was Richards, you know, uh, you know, the Texas was, listen, they were like what we would call blue dog Democrats now, you know, uh, which whose politics I might still not agree with, but you know, it's not out of the question that more liberal and progressive ideas, you know, are out of reach for, for this, this, uh, area of the country. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, also like on any of the, in any election for any of the bright red States, if you actually look at like the ratio or the numbers or whatever, I mean, at worst it's, you know, 65, 35 or something, but it's normally, uh, not that bad, you know, 55, 45, 60, 40, something like that. Yeah. And again, that's the minority, but you add all those chunks up across all the red States. And it's like, that's millions of people 
who voted the other way. And some of those people in other places, they just assume that's that that is just those are the black people, the people of color, the gay people or whatever that happen to live in those states. And obviously mm-hmm. they make up a good chunk of it. But like there are also just, you know, regular old hillbillies or whatever uh, <laughs> who happen to fall in that category, too. And people were pretty much unaware of that. Uh, it seemed so. I'm curious that uh, when you were starting out, and I, I assume you started out doing stand up locally. Yeah. Like what? Um, what degree of pushback did you get? You know, was it um, the audience evenly split? Did you did you have people come up to you after shows and talk shit? Or I mean, I, yeah, a little bit of that. It would happen sometimes, but it was like uh, I, I started in, in East Tennessee. I started in Knoxville, and I'd go to Chattanooga and and places mm-hmm. like that nashville atlanta whatever but um it was really dependent on the venue honestly like in uh there was plenty of like alt rooms or like hip cool room where they had music and also a comedy night like you know like a dive bar uh a place in chattanooga called jj's is one example and like uh th- the crowd in there was always young you know like i said hip type people and yeah they were from tennessee but they weren't like stereotypical ultra conservatives or bible thumpers because of where they were hanging out at so in there i could do all my you know commie shit (laughs) and it was and they loved it you know and then at the clubs then it was more hit or miss and so like i would i'd do some of it but i'd do the more general stuff like i've had bits about like like i would still very very enthusiastically, you know, go after like racism or the Confederate flag or something like that, even in the clubs, because I was like that type of stuff. If someone is pissed off by me, like mocking racist or something, I don't really care at all. (laughs) And people had enough, even there and with that had enough sense to like not get openly offended about that shit. But some of the stuff, like I had an abortion bit that, you know, I would do in those other rooms that I wouldn't really do in the clubs that I was in. So I did some of that to try to, you know, balance it out. But I still did. I still did some of my thing in the in the comedy clubs. And, you know, I think even that probably went better than most people would assume. But, yeah, it didn't always go great. I def- there were definitely times where I pissed people off. I got yelled at to get off the stage. This minor league hockey player tried to fight my friend because he was too drunk to realize that my friend wasn't me. Like he thought <laughs> he tried to fight my friend over a bit that I told because he thought my friend was me. I wasn't even there. I was like outside smoking a cigarette or something <laughs> while my friend's about to get his ass whipped by a hockey team. Uh, but it got broken up. So, I mean, I did run into stuff like that, but it wasn't anywhere as bad as I think people would probably assume mm. that it was, you know? Yeah. Right on. Well, that's good to hear. No one wants yeah. to get rolled after a fucking show. <laughs> no. Yeah. You just had to sort of know how to navigate it a little bit while still, you know, doing your thing. You could fill the crowd out and things like that. But, um, I definitely don't really feel like I held back overall, you know, like I right. think the bits I was doing back then were still like in the same vein of what I do now. I mean, a matter of fact, the, like the, the liberal redneck videos you brought up, they, or a direct result of an early stand-up bit that I had that was basically just me doing that concept on stage, you know, um, just being super liberal in a super redneck fashion, basically, you know, it wasn't rocket <laughs> science, but it, but that would work even in front of like, like other comics used to say, 
I'd do that in like a club and other comics would be like, I can't believe the stuff they let you get away with. And they, you know, I think maybe it was cause I've sounded like them or whatever. I definitely <laughs> right. had more grace. Like if a comic was in town from New York or something, there's no way he could have done some of the types of shit that they were letting me do, you know, right. cause I sounded like them. So that was part of it too. <clears throat> and you live in Los Angeles now. Like how often are I you do. encountering other people who sound like you? It's got to be rare, oh, right? Ne- I mean, never, like, <laughs> never, right. ever, ever. If you mean out here, like I tour the country. So if I'm in the South for a run or something, yeah, sure. of course, oh, all yeah. the time. But if you mean while in Los Angeles, literally never. Uh, I mean, it's because most people, most people who move out here from the South, like make it a point to lose their accent or they just do. Right after a while even if they don't mean to you know but i'm just i'm just not like that i don't even feel like it's a conscious choice i've made it just that just ain't gonna happen for me i can just tell. and it'd be a really sad day if it did because that's right that's that you're like that's your mickey mouse right Mm -hmm. so so yeah Yeah. no but it's it's it is odd because i'm thinking like again i live in texas Uh, obviously austin and the rest of texas are kind of two different beasts. But even when I was a kid, when I moved here, like there were, you know, lot, the, the accents were much more prevalent. And I don't think it's because we've had a lot of out of state people move here. Uh, there's just something about it though, where I hardly hear any sort of Southern accent around Austin now, like it, unless it's people doing a Matthew McConaughey impersonation or something. Yeah. You know? I mean, the thing is like, so I grew up in a really, really small town in Tennessee called Salina. There's no traffic lights and no McDonald's or anything. It's very, very rural. And so like, I think one thing that might surprise people is like when I moved to Knoxville even, or was in Knoxville or Chattanooga and started doing stand up and stuff, like I got poked fun at, and I got a lot of the same types of shit from like comics from the knoxville area people from tennessee but they're like from the city you know because i just sounded way more country that those guys didn't really have an accent despite being native tennesseans and i was like from the country so even those guys some of those dudes were like wait you really talk like that you know i thought you were doing a character or a bit or something um so i mean like i'm not bobcat goldthwaite Right. It, and it, uh, yeah, people do think that kind of thing about me a lot still. It, I mean, I get that a lot. People assuming that I'm faking it or whatever, but, but on the other end of the spectrum, like in my hometown though, growing up, I got made fun of for talking proper. You know what I mean? Like, for, <laughs> like I got made fun of for talking all city fight and shit just cause I, you know, used big words and stuff like that pretty much. But like, it's very much a, a relative thing, you know, and like I tell people, dude, some of the guys that I went to school with, I'm not exaggerating. Like they literally talk like this. I don't know if they still do, but this is how people talk in Salina, Tennessee. That's like, it's that thick, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's just a big spectrum. Like of, it's coming out of a mud puddle or yeah. something. Like, burr, right. burr, burr. It does sound like that. You're right. I've, I've encountered that voice. I've been all over the country. I've been, I've encountered that voice almost everywhere I've been, but LA, I don't think I ever have or any, anywhere in California for that matter. But like we were just in Bangor, Maine. And I heard a couple of, couple of redneck yeah. kind of voices, you know, well, yeah, it, people it will, transcends the, yeah, the, yeah the you're right. It does. But people will like, 
people in LA sometimes they'll hear me and then they'll be like, where are you from? And they're like, Oh, I'm from Tennessee too, or whatever. But that person basically never also has the accent. <laughs> right, you know what I mean? Right. They recognize it in me and then they're from there, but they don't talk this way is pretty well, much. You're, how it you're goes. right in that it would have to be a conscious choice for you to lose it. I think like you would have to, yeah, you might pick up like inflection on certain words, I think, but well, if it's so ingrained in you like that, it's not going to, it's not going to change fully well, unless you like want I, it to. I don't know if you want to get into the weeds on this or not, but it goes, I think it go. it's even goes a little further than that for me with my accent, because like I actually, I like other accents, you know, and I like trying mm -hmm. to mimic them and imitate them and stuff like that. And even as someone who does that, the one thing that is the hardest for me to do is just speak in a flat American accent with mm. like, just the removal of my Southern accent completely because it's like my brain interprets that as the absence of an accent instead mm. of faking <laughs> right. a different kind, you know? Right. right. And it, that's like, it's not just, Oh, I'd have to choose and work on losing it. It's like, I've tried before to be able to, you know, <laughs> throw it off just to sound like somebody from Iowa or something. And it's really hard for me to do. You know what I was? I could do like a Scottish brogue or something like that. I walk around my house talking like a, like a from the Highlands of Scotland, and you know, or like a, I don't know, Mike, doing Australian that that sort of thing. You know, Arr, like, like, like to switch it up, you know. And yeah. uh, but, but what happens when you? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I just stomped on it, but no, but, it's, but like it, I, if I try to talk without. <laughs> just talk like a regular American without any sort of accent at all. It's like, it's how it comes out and I have to, it's like a real struggle for me. Uh, and I don't really know why, you know? Hmm. Uh, so yeah. it's definitely, I'm definitely stuck with it. I think, which I'm, yeah, it's, fuck fine. It. it's a good voice though. Yeah. Yeah. I like a good Southern accent. Like, I, I mean, I was, I grew up in in Texas. I've I've lived down here all my life, but uh, I I don't sound like I'm from Texas and hear that all the time. You know, uh, it at least when you go other places, people aren't like, "Aren't you supposed to have a Southern accent?" Like, no, motherfucker, this is just mm -hmm. how I sound. You know, so <laughs> yeah. at least you get to avoid that part. I definitely don't get that. End, is, is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> I think it might be time to get Trey's Stephen King origin story here. So. Yes. Uh, so can you tell us, Trey, what is your Stephen King origin story? Um, this is honestly hard for me to answer because it goes back so far that I'm not sure I can remember. So like my dad, I was raised mostly by my dad. My mom wasn't around a lot. My dad owned a video store in my hometown and he was a big reader to a very voracious reader. Uh, and he was a big horror guy, actually. And I know we're on Fangoria and everything. And I've, Love Stephen King. The truth is, it was always a bit of a bone of contention with me between me and my dad with horror movies because I never really got into them the way he was. But he was a big horror dude, and he had he loved Stephen King and had so many Stephen King books around and stuff like that. He was always reading Stephen King and other books too. And I used to like, like one of my core memories as a kid. I don't even remember how old I was, but definitely too young. And this isn't Stephen King, but it's relevant. Like I snuck and got out of my dad's book collection, the book Helter Skelter about the Manson murders, <laughs> right. you know, and buddy to say that that <laughs> fucked me up is 
quite the understatement. Like it, again, I couldn't have been more than like eight or nine. And I developed this intense phobia of like serial killers and stuff. I was like, you know, make sure everything was locked and stuff before I'd lay down. I mean, it was bad. That book fucked me up. Uh, but so I would, and my dad definitely didn't know that I was like reading it. So like I would sneak and get his books and stuff. And he had a bunch of Stephen King ones. And I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain trying to remember like what the very first one was. And I'm not sure I could come up with it. Probably I feel like was a collection of short stories because he had all those. And my number one short story collection from Stephen King when I was younger was Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Uh, but I read Night Shift and Skeleton Crew too. So I'm going to say it was that, but being honest, I'm not 100% sure which work it was because I was so young and everything, but it was a big part of my childhood for sure. So since you weren't into the movie stuff as much, was your first experience with King the the short stories? I think so. Not not, uh, an adaptation? I think so. My dad, another thing with my dad that I've talked about before, him owning that video store and stuff, he definitely, and being a single father, he definitely showed me shit at too young of an age, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like I know I could not have been older than six or seven when I first watched Die Hard, you know, as an example, mm-hmm. like, but also like the shining, like he showed me the shining when I was probably no way I was older than 12. But the thing is, I definitely had read some Stephen King stuff before that time. So yeah, I think the written works uh did come first for me yeah did you kind of rare to to be honest like yeah because so many people come to the movies for and and, you know even me i like i co-host a stephen king podcast i'm i'm sure i saw the movies first i was a movie kid more than i was a reader and the the stephen king's name in the movies is actually what got me into reading in a in a backwards way because i love the movie so much um you know, stand like, by me and right. Stand by me. Yeah. And uh, yeah. the shining and uh, like stuff like cat's eye. And, you know, cause I was the perfect age for that when that was on cable rotation, you know? So I saw that a million times, um, you know, the cat's eye is a collection of short of his short uh-huh. stories, essentially. So it's like, uh, he was just everywhere in pop culture. You know, I'm, I'm an eighties kid. Um, right. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where he was at his full well, cocaine fueled powers. Yeah. You know? I mean, I definitely watch maximum overdrive speaking of him being cocaine fueled <laughs> and all that. I mean, I yeah. like, again, my dad had the video store. Like I saw most of those movies too. I'm just saying, I'm pretty sure I had that I had been reading it first. Cause I definitely was like reading the stuff at a pretty young age, but you know, that may not necessarily be true, but that's how well, I remember it. But yeah, I saw all that stuff Prince as a legend. kid. Yeah. It sounds like your parents were pretty permissive then in terms of, you know, well, my dad, or, okay. I mean, my mom would have, it, it's not that my mom minded. It's just my mom wasn't really there. So right. it just came down to my dad. And yes, he was extremely permissive and also would like, like I've joked before, like he would, he would, have you ever, you ever like recommend something to a friend and then find out that they didn't like it. And you're kind of like, well, what the what the fuck's that about, man? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. You, yeah. You sure. feel almost offended, you know, because it was you. You feel some like ownership of it or something. Uh, my dad used to be that way. Like with like for I can remember my dad getting annoyed with me 
for like not digging David Lynch, right? David Lynch movies. <laughs> At what age? And I was like, and I was like, I'm 11, you know, or whatever. Like, I mean, I didn't say that at the time. I was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the fuck any of this is. Like, it's weird, <laughs> you know. And it like annoyed him. And then years later, I was like, that is so fucking ridiculous. Of course, I didn't get a racer head or whatever. You know, that <laughs> is that the one he showed you? My dad, he definitely showed me that one. We also watched <laughs> Mulholland Drive when it came out. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just always my dad. I, my dad was extremely supportive and very loving and great in a lot of ways. But yeah, with that type of shit, he was pretty out there. Uh, you know, he used to tell me censorship is bullshit, son. Like other kids, parents wouldn't let them have like, uh, you know, unedited rap records and stuff like that. This is the era mm-hmm. of like Eminem and DMX and those guys. My dad hated rap, but he'd always buy me those records, though, because, you know, he just didn't believe in that. Didn't believe in since the censoring of artists and stuff. So, yeah, I got all that shit at an early age, Stephen you, King included. And you've got a couple of kids now. Like, do you? No, I do not. No? <laughs> like, Your fucking Wikipedia page is a liar. No, 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 no. I, I, I got ahead of the question you're asking. <laughs> I oh. no, I do not treat my kids the same way. Is what oh, I was saying. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes, I have two. I have two boys, and they're they're ten and eleven. And I've no, not even remotely. Part my wife is even more strict than I am about that type of shit. Like I've been thinking, like she's taking a trip in a few weeks. She's gonna be gone for a few days, and I'm already thinking in my head. I'm like, okay, maybe Terminator time. You know, Predator. <laughs> Sure. Some stuff, some stuff like that. Cause again, they're like tweens at this point. They're not that yeah. young, Yeah. Uh, but no, I've not been at all like my dad in that regard because I am of two minds about it. Like I do think it was kind of cool. Like I got a lot of those cultural experiences at a younger age than a lot of kids did. Although really mm-hmm. not kids from a broken home. It's pretty common in that regard. But, uh, but also like as a parent myself, I think that, you know, like I said, I, I'm conflicted about it. Like I always felt that it was kind of cool, but I'm also like, yeah, but I don't, you know, I don't know. Like Where do I said, you draw I, the line? Uh, oh, I mean, right now it's a pretty, it's a pretty tepid line. It's like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like Marvel movies and shit like that. We watched, gotcha. uh, we watched Edge of Tomorrow uh, the night before last. You know. We're like most American families, basically, where it's like, yeah, violence, bring it on. That's not going to impact them at all. They'll be right. totally fine with that. But God forbid they see a breast or ask about sex or something, because then I'll have to deal with it. And that's, un- yeah. you know, uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Have you? Did you ever, like, when you were a kid, have to, like, sit through a movie? You're watching a movie with your folks and there's a sex scene. It's the most yeah. uncomfortable goddamn thing in the world. I used to do a thing where my family was a big movie family. You know, and so if we went and saw such and such movie and a sex scene erupted in it, I would suddenly come up with a reason to use the bathroom or something, you know, which they yeah. must have noticed. But it was just it was the best uh, defense I had against the the horror of having to sit through like. Titty shots with your mom, yeah. like I don't I don't I, I can't imagine anyone enjoying that. So I, I, I get that to a certain extent. Um, right yeah it's just awkward you know and uncomfortable or whatever sure. so yeah yeah but violence but yeah but violence yeah fine 
Like, right. I, and I, and I, like, I'm not saying that sarcastically. Like, I, I don't know. Like, movie like Predator or, you know, if I had kids, I'd show them Prey. Did you see Prey? I fucking loved Prey. How fucking I loved great it. was Prey? I loved it. Been waiting on that movie for a long. I'm sure you've probably read at times over the internet or on the internet over the years, those like rumors that they had a plans like Predator in Time franchise where it's like yeah. Predator versus Native Americans, Predator versus Romans, and then go in the future, Predator versus Space Marines, you know, whatever. Right. That type, and like... Uh, I don't know if they're going to do that, but I've always been fully on board with that idea. And after seeing Prey, I'm definitely still am. I thought that shit rocked. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's another one. I'd like to show them that one. I'm about to start getting into some of those because I do think it is, it's something it's easy to make. Like, I agree. America deserves a little bit of mocking for that sort of culture, you know, that, that uh, attitude towards violence versus nudity and shit like sure. that. But that's not me saying I don't, I think violence is, <laughs> I don't think it fucks kids like that type of like action movie violence. It's just right. like violent video games. When I was in college, I wrote multiple papers and shit about how much bullshit the idea that violent video games, you know, mm -hmm. led to real life violence yeah. was. And I still very much believe all that. So yeah, I really don't care that much or mind it. I agree. I mean, I, I watched horror movies from a young age. I haven't murdered anyone. I don't, right. I don't, I just don't buy that argument. Um, and you know, to your, to your dad's point, it's still more bullshit censorship. Yeah. I mean, who knows how I would feel if I had my own kids, you know, I've made the, I made the conscious decision not to, but, um, but I do think though, if you were going to show your kids predator, I think I would start with prey. Just because okay. I think they'll Let's have start with prey. Okay. I would start with prey because I think they would have, you know, even though it's a young girl at the center of prey, I think they might be able to relate to that more than Arnold Schwarzenegger. That would be my thinking there. Hmm. Uh, one time you just reminded me, I tried to. So when me and my wife first started dating, uh, predators had come out the yeah. Adrian yeah. Brody one. And I, we hadn't been dating long. And I told her, I was like, I want to go see this movie predators. And she was like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and, uh, and but she's not a big movie person at all and she had no idea what it was about and she told me later that it was called predators and she thought it was some kind of like svu type thing you know what i mean like like <laughs> sexual <laughs> predators or like something chris hansen was gonna yeah or like up. just yeah. like a cop like more like the movie prisoners i guess that movie you sure, know sure. Yeah. Like I, she, something like that is what and she you thought. you were all excited to go see it. And she's like, all right. right. Okay. Yeah. She tells me something like that. And then, you know, <laughs> fucking they're in outer space. These pods are landing on this jungle planet and all that shit. And there's like skulls getting ripped out or whatever. And at one point she leaned over and she was like, what is this? <laughs> Cause she, like, she was totally unfamiliar with predator. Role. So yeah. fast forward years later. And I tried to replicate that with prey. Like I, I, I like, cause I knew she didn't know anything about it. And I was like, yeah, it's just sort of like a, it's like a, you know, a period drama about this Native American tribe and something bad starts happening to them or whatever, oh, you yes. know? And, uh, and I queued it up and turned it on and like, she was just, she just wasn't into it from the get go. And then she was like, I don't remember what it was, but she was like, this is going to be some kind of crazy shit, isn't it? Some kind of crazy shit is going to start happening. <laughs> and, uh, and then when the predator like sort of shows up, she just bowed out because she's just not <laughs> she's just not into that type of thing. 
uh, which I knew. And then I tried to remind her, I was like, no, remember like early on in our relationship, we had that experience. She had no recollection of it. I just <laughs> she was like, I, what are you talking about? So you're like, was this pretty- was a great bit. And you were exactly, <laughs> exactly. Total misfire. Didn't work at all. Um, but yeah, I love that movie though. Um, just as a, a final note on this section, are, are you in general a horror fan? We talking about movies or no, you just mean anything. Yeah. Movies uh, yeah, or uh, books, whatever. Like it's, it's a specific of that specific genre and whatever format it might be in. Um, I definitely am not into like haunted houses and, and like rides or amusement type situations that are horror themed. I never really have been, uh, movies. And I'm trying to think of some good examples, you know, like classics of the genre. If, if it's a really, really kick-ass horror movie in most people's mm-hmm. estimation, I probably love it. Probably, you know, like, again, the classics, like The Thing and Alien and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Or if it's something, and a whole bunch of people say this, but if it's something that does some different shit with the genre, like Cabin in the Woods or something like that, mm-hmm. I'm real into it. But like... I know like horror buffs just get down with all of it. And no, I don't do that. I mostly skip the kind of garden variety offerings. And I used to read again. I was a huge Stephen King fan and I read some other horror type stuff when I was younger, but um, now I'm more sci-fi and fantasy really when it comes to reading shit. Although I did just read 11, 22, 63. Yeah. Um, right on. Yeah. Uh, a couple of months ago. So still got love for Stephen King, but outside of that, I'm not like a, I'm definitely not a big like horror buff. Um, I think you could still be like, like your, your explanation makes perfect sense. But I I think that you can still be a horror fan, uh, even if you don't love all of it. Like horror movies to me are like, horror movies are just the flip side of comedies. Um, Uh They make a ton of these things. And yes. you can make them usually very cheaply unless they're they're high, you know, like some sort of, you know, high octane premise that's going to involve a lot of, you know, right. like a bigger budget. Right. Um, and and I think that horror probably has more misses than hits than any other genre, you know, like and I'll watch just about every any horror movie you put in front of me. But like most of it, if we're being honest, is just like. Yeah, you know, it's it's not that great. Uh, right. But like, I don't like slasher movies, for instance. I don't. Yeah, I don't particularly give a shit about exorcism movies. You know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. specific mon- like vampire shit. Don't care about that either, you know, but I still consider myself a horror fan. So, right. You might you might, you might go a little easier on yourself, you know? OK, if, well, I like I do. I like creature features. Um, right on. Oh yeah. Generally. Oh yeah. Monster movies, good. movies that have some kind of creature that's got a design and shit like that. Like I yeah, actually, that's yeah. a sub, that's a sub genre that I actually am kind of into. Like I'll definitely check one of those out, but I'm with you on like the slasher movies and the exorcist, most ghost stuff, you know, um, not super into, but yeah, I, there's definitely shit that I like. Yeah. Right on. That's a pretty well, good segue there, yes, by the yeah. way, talking about, uh, your chosen title because, this is King typically, even though he'll have iconic horror bad guys, they're almost outside of like the Cujos or whatever that are animals. It's like it, it's usually a human 
thread. Mm-hmm. It's the Jack Torrance, Annie Wilkes. Uh, you know, it's usually that. And when he plays around with the paranormal, uh, things get get interesting. That's where you get the Pennywises and whatnot. But you know, the mist is like his just unabashed like 1950s creature feature. Yeah. You know throwback but he can't he can't just do something he can't shoot it off as like uh like uh, joe dante did with uh, matinee or whatever where it's not his love letter to these schlocky you know thems and you know giant giant crazy monster movies that he grew up loving can't help but turn into like a lord of the flies style you know Mm -hmm. society breaking down microcosm thing you know he just can't help himself uh so you get this great blend with the mist i think which is why i'm very excited you know to have you on to talk about it you get this blend of like social commentary plus just unabashed like monster kid energy in the story and then you know darabont is obviously the Mm -hmm. perfect person to have adapted that as well because he embodies all that you know with his work yeah, right. I mean, I, yeah, I realized at, at the end of saying I was into creature features, I realized the application to the mist because, yeah, that it's like any kind of also like multidimensional type of shit. You know what I mean? Mm. Like creatures from some other dimension or beyond the veil. And it, so there's no limit to how wild looking or out there, you know, right. they can right. they can be cosmic, that type of shit like uh I just, I dig all of that, but yeah. So do you guys say, do you want me to like sort of give a broad overview of the plot of it or whatever? Okay. So it's in uh, Bridgeton, Maine. I think it is. There's been a thunderstorm the night before. So the power has been out and it's uh, father takes his eight year old son to the, uh, to the grocery store where a lot of townspeople are. And then while they're there, a mist rolls in outside and people are kind of freaking out. And it turns out that the mist houses these aforementioned, you know, multidimensional vessels for murder and terror uh, are (laughs) out in the mist. So they kind of get stuck in there in the grocery store to try to figure out what they're going to do. They end up splitting into factions. There's a religious nut in there, Miss Carmody, Carmody, however you, Carmody, you got it. Carmody, yeah. yeah. Uh, Who sort of rallies half the people into this, like, end times, uh, you know, beg for forgiveness, make sacrifices type uh, religious fervor thing. And then the other people are trying to be more practical. What the hell are we going to do with all these goddamn monsters in this mist or whatever? (laughs) uh, And it, you know, goes generally poorly. There's a lady who leaves they try to stop her from leaving but she's got to get home to her kids which i certainly relate to and you just assume she's dead people die off there's some soldiers there the last remaining soldier you get this moment where he kind of uh you know lets the cat out of the bag there's a secret governmental facility nearby and they had been working on a uh, you know, covert project to open a portal to another dimension always a good idea mm-hmm. and that had gotten out of hand and now here we are and the mist is loose. Um, the lady convinces her flock to start sacrificing people to these old gods. Um, that's when the other ones decide, the other group decides, yeah, we're going to need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so, uh, they managed to get, you know, into a vehicle and leave like four of them. The dad is son, woman, and, uh, another, another bystander. Uh, I believe I'm pulling all this from, from, memory and oh, then, no, you're, you're right on so far and uh 
they're making their way out of town. They run out of gas. You guys want me to go ahead and, and do this? Or are we going to do this later? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I uh, the ending is a yeah. huge thing. <clears throat> There's no way we're getting out of this without talking about the ending. So. Exactly. Right. So, like, do you want me to just go ahead and tell the ending? Or oh, you yeah, want to yeah, yeah. Back? We'll They've all it later. seen it anyway. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're fine. So they run out of gas. They've given up hope completely. They ultimately decide there's no way out of this. It'd be better off to commit suicide than submit yourselves to these interdimensional terrors and running amok. <laughs> but they've only got three bullets. Uh, so the father basically makes the sacrifice in his mind of shooting everyone else, including his son. And then giving himself to the mist, he's like off, you know, he's going to take the unspeakable torture that that experience presents so they don't have to. So he kills them all, steps out into the mist, and then the army rolls through. They're clearing out the monsters. You know, day is breaking. The woman who went to get her kids is in the back of one of the vehicles with her kids. They're all safe. And the father, played by Thomas Jane, by the way, uh, understandably completely breaks down and is, you know, presumably about to fully lose his mind. And that's the end of the movie. So <laughs> yeah, I, um, that's another thing that I know that ending is extremely polarizing and everything. Mm. And I also know, cause I, I have also read the story. It's actually a pretty, it's a pretty damn faithful adaptation, especially oh, as yeah. like King's adaptations go, but the ending is different in the, in the story kind of ends with him just, still heading off into the mist and he hears this radio broadcast that offers like a glimmer of hope. And then that's the end of it. Uh, yeah. I think and, Stephen King has said that. Right. If he had thought of Darabont's ending, like right. that's the one he would have gone with. He was like a, a fucking course. Like that's how. Yeah. I thought it, it, I thought the ending and I'm not like, uh, I don't know. I'm not into super doom and gloom or shit like that, generally speaking, but I was just so completely blown away by that ending. The first time I saw it in 2007, when it came out, I was 21 also not expecting it because the short story doesn't end that way. And I just thought it was so twisted and dark and fucking brilliant. And I loved it. And I still think it's one of the great like mm. horror movie endings uh, out there. Cause yeah, Frank Darabont made, I feel like for a while there, Frank Darabont was like, the only guy who could reliably adapt Stephen King stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like most, most other people failed, but he had uh Shawshank and the green mile. And then this movie, it was and, like Rob Reiner before him. And then it was Darabont. And now it's right. Flanagan seems to be the oh, guy right. to go. Yeah, to I haven't it. seen many of uh, Flanagan's uh, cracks at it, but I have heard they're good and I need oh. to, but have you, but, did you yeah. see Gerald's game? No. Oh, that's okay. Look, both of uh, uh, like Mike. Mike is a, a a friend of the show. He's been on like a bazillion times. We've done events with him and shit. Uh, real cool guy. But I'm everything I'm about to say. I, I mean it. Besides that, you know, right. um, I'm not just blowing smoke. Like Gerald's game and Doctor Sleep, particularly the director's cuts are like, or the director's cut is. Um, here's a guy taking two books that absolutely should not have been turned into movies. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like if you read them, you would think only a, a lunatic would attempt to translate this to screen. And he made him work. And to me that, that puts him on like an upper echelon of um, like King adapters, you know, he's only got yeah. two under his belt, honestly, you know, that, that I guess that's what about what Darabont had and, 
maybe a little is it a little less than Reiner? Didn't Reiner, Reiner have had three? two? He had Misery and uh, and Stand by Me. Mm-hmm. I was thinking he had a third. I'm probably fucking. He produced uh, Shawshank. Okay, right on. Well, well anyway, that. um, that's that that's the magic of that guy. If you if you have not seen either his King uh, movies, I would I would really recommend them because uh, you're unlikely. In fact, you're guaranteed to never see anyone else attempt that material. In as, right as strong as uh, a way as as he did, but for the mist, um, first of all, what do you think about the mist in terms of it being this this perfect microcosm? Like, is this? Do you think this is uh, the the dynamics that unfold within that that like piggly wiggly or whatever the fuck it is that they're <laughs> they're all trapped in? Like during the the thing, yeah. is your was your experience growing up that this is probably how it would shake out? Do you feel that way now? Like you know, um, I mean, if we were talking, you know, like small town, like the town I grew up in, that sure. yeah, there would definitely be that sort of zealot faction. The really, you know, who would and like, dude, the thing is, <laughs> I mean, frankly, when you're dealing with that type of shit actually right. happening to you it's kind of hard to blame somebody for going this seems like <laughs> the end times you know sure, right. sure. sort of does you know but uh i still wouldn't you know get down with that i wouldn't uh you know default to gods or whatever yeah. but yeah I, I thought hysteria. i definitely thought the sort of social dynamics of it i mean they rang true to me you know and i do think that's one of the things that's cool about it like i said when i first saw it I'd read the story years ago when I was younger. I didn't remember that much about it. I watched the movie, then went back and reread the story. But when I first watched the movie, which I've seen a couple of times, I, like I said, I was 21 and I was mostly just really into the monsters and the, the core and the, you mm-hmm. know, and the ending and all that shit. And yeah. I came to appreciate the sort of the social dynamics part of it more, you know, later on. Well, I have an exciting announcement for y'all. It's been a few episodes since I've gotten to tell you about our friends at Lumi Labs. Guess mm-hmm. who's back, baby? Who's back yeah. in the mid-roll? Big L. That makes it sound like they're losers. We don't want to call them the Big L. Come on now. Uh, that's Big LL. Yeah, the double L. Big double L. We, we love Big Double L over here. Uh, it's once again time to sing the praises of microdosing. Thanks to our friends at Lumi Labs. That's where you take a little THC gummy throughout the day to maintain your chill. You're not getting high, mind you. Just keeping nice and relaxed. For me, I use these as a sleep aid. Uh, I have been very open with the fact that my insomnia has been a little out of control. My circadian <laughs> rhythm's all fucked up uh, at all points. Every week I'm struggling against my own natural vampiric sleep schedule. And these Lumi gummies have been a godsend. I use them um, like a lot of people use melatonin. These work for me better than melatonin. I don't feel as like kind of groggy if you don't get that full night's sleep, which happens mm-hmm. if you have melatonin. It's uh, the Lumi Labs gummies uh, keep me nice and relaxed. They help me go to bed. That's how I use them. The best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and aren't affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. To learn more about microdosing, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Again, that's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. Now, with all that said, let's get back to the show. Through the teachers and through the witches and slam in the back of my 
maybe I would have been a little bit more hopeful for humanity uh, around the release of this movie. Right. You know, even though that was people forget politically. Uh, and I spoke to Darabont about this, actually. Uh, uh, he, you know, he, he was talking about it's like people forget this is pre Obama era. This is, you know, height of, of George W. Bush right before the recession. You know, the movies, the movie came out and this was according to Darabont was kind of a reaction to the George W. Bush years. And I can only imagine how much harsher his version of the mist would be now post Trump post uh, COVID and watching like just the absolute meltdown, you know, on the right and religious right side over things like mask mandates and whatnot. And, you know, just the basics of keeping, you know, everybody, your fellow fellow American safe uh, right. uh, seem to go right out the window. Um, and so if, if, if the movie we got was the reaction to, to W Bush, you know, like, can you imagine what, what the movie would have been now if Darabont had, I don't think I'd like it as much. I, yeah. I think that, <clears throat> I think that part of what makes the story work so well is that it is more or less a balanced to use the word again, microcosm. And I think that if you start leaning too far in one side or another, it loses that. Mm. So if if he made another version that was a reaction to fucking the, you know, the Trump years that like really dug into, I don't know, anti-masking or religious fervor or, you know, any of this kind of shit, you know, um, blind loyalty to the police or military forces and so on and so forth, like. I think it would throw everything off balance. I think he probably made it at the exact right time. Yeah. You know, like we said, it never, yeah, it always sort of tracked to me maybe because of like the type of town that I'm from, but it it never felt uh, hard to imagine, you know, at least one group of people sort of reacting in, in that way to this. Mm -hmm. But it's also like on what you were saying, I feel like a lot of people have thought, you know, the Trump era and everything almost makes us like almost nostalgic for the Bush era or something. Like yeah, feel, the Bush yeah. era feels almost quaint in comparison. But the truth is, like as a young twenty something during that time, like I, dude, I hated George Bush. You know, oh, yeah. I thought we were. I didn't think it could get worse. I was wrong. But like, yeah. I was not in a like placated uh, or you know content place with the politics of this country or anything like that in 2007, like late in the Bush era. (laughs) And so, you know, I think it all kind of tracks. This is a random seeming reference, but like there's this song, it's on my workout playlist. So it it like came on the other day randomly. Did you guys ever hear the song, uh, handlebars by Flowbots? Y'all know that song? No. Right. So it's like a Flowbots was like a sort of, kind of politically charged rap group in the aughts. And they really Uh only had this one minor hit that I'm aware of, but it's like, I recommend you and the listeners listen to it because like, it's wild how much it seems to me at least to be about Trump and the Trump era, Mm -hmm. but it's from the Bush era. It's from like 2007 or 2008. And it's really about that. But if you listen to it now, it sounds like it was written in response to the era we live in. They even bring up vaccines mm. and drones and shit in it and stuff mm. like that. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's easy to forget 
you know how pissed off and worried and alarmed a lot of people were, you know, even back right. then, like at this point in time. Yeah. But to Scott's point, I think like part of the, like, I'm, listen, I'm always in for, you know, laying into uh, the religious right as, as hard as you can. And that's uh, maybe one of the reasons why I love Stephen King's work so much, because he does it all the fucking time. If there's a religious character in his book, nine times out of 10, they're the, they're the villain of the piece. Um, but, uh, one thing that I really love that Darabont did with the adaptation was make Carmody kind of right a little bit, just enough to, as you said, yes, look outside. Of course it's the end times, but like mm-hmm. she, they have that moment where the, the bugs come in. Right. And right, it, one yep. lands on her, it doesn't sting her. Yep. You know, it could very well, you know, I read it as chance, but to other people, that's a miracle witnessing it. And then suddenly when there's the sacrifice that happens and she says, we won't get attacked tonight and they don't get attacked tonight. How right right is she, you know, is she really on some sort of, does she have an inside line here that we we're not aware of? The ambiguity of it is kind of what makes it, uh, cause she's clearly the bad guy, but the ambiguity like gives it a little bit of depth that you don't commonly get with this kind of movie, especially with this kind of villain. I agree. I mean, yeah. And that like, that's one of the worst things that can happen with someone like that is given any sort of like, uh, you know, <laughs> confirmation or backup seemingly like, even right. if you know, it could just be random chance or a coincidence, you know, exactly how it's going to be interpreted. And there's not really anything you could do about that. Right. And it's, uh, you know, a major problem, but yeah, I agree that that it was adding that the sort of shades of that nuance to it or whatever, where you can, you know, you can see like, well, you know, I sort of get why they would think that, I suppose. Like, it's, you know, this is still bad, but look around you. Sure. Whatever. Um, Yeah, does make it better. How do you think, uh, Trey, you would react in this exact situation? You know, wife and kids at home. You're at the grocery store. The mist happens. Now what? Like, are 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 you trying to make it home? Probably if it's just, if it's just me at the store and wife and both kids are at home. Yes, definitely. If it's me and one of them at the store and she and the other one is at home, probably not probably going to try to ride <laughs> it out for a minute and hope that they also ride it out in the house. Uh, Does safely. the distance to the house make a difference? Yeah, for sure. If it was you know <laughs> yeah. just around the corner, maybe right. I'd be more sure, inclined sure, to take sure. a shot at it, but yeah, I wouldn't want to, put one of the, the boys you know lives at risk uh if at all it was avoidable but yeah if it was just me and they were all at home and the mist happens yes i would do what the the lady did in the movie right uh, take a shot at it hmm. yeah interesting i think well, i probably would too if i had kids um yeah i can't imagine it right now but like you know when you become a parent that's a different thing entirely very much so yeah, and, it and frankly, stuff. I would kind of be on the fence just to get back to my dog. So, right. <laughs> you know, if I'm that way about my dog, I'm I'm probably just boned on 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 the kid front. You know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to try to try to ninja my way out of there and get immediately slaughtered by something in the parking lot. Probably, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot with any kind of movies like this or survival movies or whatever is I'm always like, yeah, there, I, there's no way I'm making it to this group. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I'll be in the first wave of corpses probably. <laughs> yep. I have no plan, no skills, you yeah. know. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. right. 
And my I only t- tell myself, to... I'm like, yeah, I'm cl- you're clever though. And I'm like, right. Yeah. Kill me first. You know, if we're getting, <laughs> yeah. getting one yeah. of these scenarios, that guy's a problem. Won't yeah. shut up. Uh, so yeah, it wouldn't be good. Yeah. My only hope in that kind of situation would be to Forrest Gump my way through it. Just yeah, be like, well, just by <laughs> luck and happenstance, I'm going to be, find myself in all the right spots at the right times. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely dead first, especially if it requires any amount of, you know, I'm a large man. So if, if I need to go on a long hike, it, that's probably the end of it. So <laughs> yeah, cardio, um, right? The zombie yeah, movies. Yeah, I know. And, and you want to hear something really kind of fucked up is, uh, is I was covering movie, uh, stuff and I was going to junkets and things around the time zombie land came out. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, so I made a, a self deprecating fat guy joke to Jesse Eisenberg when I was yeah. interviewing him about that, like cardio or whatever. And, and then he like ran with it to the point where I'm like, should I be like offended? That's hilarious. Now? And then it, afterwards, cause it was at a, a junket thing and they had all these posters out and they're like, Hey, do you want to sign poster? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? It was him and like Woody Harrelson and like, yeah, of course, you know, sign the posters for me. And he signed it and I still have it somewhere. I'll have to dig it out and find a picture of it. But he like signed it like to Eric, uh, cardio, cardio, cardio or something. Right. And I'm just like, I should be offended, but I kind of think this is funny. So, right. Yeah. He, yeah. He took your, uh, offhanded remark a little too far like he just really <laughs> rolled with it he was like oh thank god he opened that door i've been wanting to make yes. fat jokes this whole time <laughs> yes it's on now yeah and, but uh but also to Squeal be nice like to, jesse, to be nice to jesse eisenberg like he's one of the few people where i've interviewed him multiple times for different things and he always like knows who i am the second that i show up you know he's like one of the i don't know if he's got like photographic memory or if he's being prepped ahead of time. But like every, like I interviewed him for social network. I interviewed him for this. I interviewed him like years later for a, um, a movie called the art of self-defense, you know? And, and he was yeah. like, Oh yeah. And then you're catching up a year. And like, he just knew all that shit. So, uh, you know, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't want that, I inter- letters. I interviewed that dude once for uh zombie land two, And uh-huh. it was, uh, he was paired with Ruben Fleischer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I walked in the door with a, a bunch of tall boys of white claw and slammed them down on the table in front of them and said, uh, brought you boys some white claws. Like that was my opening line. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, this wasn't during the period, I guess I should say where I was doing like not antagonistic interviews with, uh, uh people we were interviewing for the site, but, uh, disruptive interviews might be the better mm-hmm. way to put it. And, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, to his credit, rolled with the whole thing. He he refused to drink them because he thought they might be dosed. Uh, <laughs> or also because he was just like, I, I think he said he didn't drink or he couldn't handle his liquor or something. But Ruben yeah. Fleischer, not a fan of that gag. Uh, no. Very combative interview with uh, well, on, on that one. But what can I don't do? know how he was. Fe- so I have a me and the guys that I tour and, and oftentimes collaborate with Corey and Drew, we uh sold a pilot once upon a time and we developed with Ruben's uh, production company and the pilot ended up not getting made. But so like, I know Ruben, you know, he worked with us on that. I always got along with him. I think Ruben's a a good dude, but Corey through Ruben because they were filming in Georgia where Corey lives, Uh Corey met Eisenberg and some of the other cast of Zombieland too and stuff. And Corey told me that Eisenberg was like a super rad and awesome dude who was, you know, yeah, great to be around and all that so yeah. a little neurotic i thought but right. like, oh, totally, yeah. you know you know not a 
not an asshole by any stretch right. of yeah. imagination. You know, he was he was there to have fun for sure. So Trey, I have a question for you, and that's how you perceived this movie when you saw it versus if you revisit it post having kids, because I don't know how the ending hits differently yeah. if it is like you have kids and you're like, I would never do that. Or are you the opposite? And you go like, they have that conversation in the middle of the movie where the little boy is just like, do not let the monsters get me. Whatever you have to do, do yeah. not let the monsters get me. And he, and the dad promises no matter what, I won't let the monsters get you. And then he's faced with the situation. Do I let the monsters get my kid or do I shoot this kid in the face? Like, like yeah. I don't know. So, so how, as a parent, like how, how does this movie affect you now? Is it the same as when you saw it pre pre kids? It's definitely not the same. Cause like I said, when I first saw it, you know, I was 21 man, some friends of mine saw it, you know, smoking weed, hanging out, whatever. And it was, it split the group, you know, like I loved the ending, but some of them didn't, some of them really hated it. And even though we were all like young 20 somethings and nobody had a kid or anything yet, some of the guys were just like, I just don't buy that, man. Like, I just, I'm sorry. I, I can't see a, a dad, a loving father doing that. You know, it just, it's like shock value that I don't think would actually happen. You know, whatever. That's yeah. what some of them were saying. And I was like, I don't know, man. Did you see those fucking things? You know, like, <laughs> and so it was kind of a debate, but I didn't feel any kind of real emotional connection with it or nothing. I just thought it was really awesome and creative way to end a movie years later when right. I first had kids for, again, they're 10 and 11 now. And I would say for the first five or six, maybe a little longer years of their lives, I had no, cause that's one thing that happens when you have kids in my experience is it opens up this whole other range of human emotion. Basically <laughs> it makes you generally more emotional uh, for a while. And I, I, for those first few years of their lives, I couldn't handle even a little bit a scene like that in a movie. I still remembered the scene mm. from this movie and I remembered like liking it, but I would never have sat down to watch it again. Or if I like, if I was watching something and something bad happened to a child in the movie or something like that, I'd have to like, you know, fast forward through that. Like I couldn't take it. And eventually yeah. I got over that, you know, to the point where it's like, look, it's fucking, it's all fake. Like I'm still not good with, documentaries and stuff about that type mm. of shit. I won't watch that kind of thing when you're talking mm -hmm. about real life, but with, you know, fictional mo movies with big monsters and shit. And at a certain point I was like, quit being such a pussy. Like it's fine. <laughs> None of this is real. <laughs> right. So like I got over that. And then since then I have watched the mist again. And I, that's why I think the ending is so great is because like it's real tough, man, obviously. Cause like when faced with, what he absolutely thought was the reality of what was going to happen to his son. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like it's objectively preferable to take any measure to not have that happen. And I can certainly relate to that, but as far as like, you know, I get that idea as far as being able to actually do it though. I can't say that I, I like, I don't think mm. I physically could. You'd hand the gun off to somebody else in the car saying you do guess. this. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I got to that point, I mean, again, you know, I don't even like fucking thinking about it, despite how outrageous of a scenario it is. But I definitely, <laughs> you know, it's I mean, yeah, I don't think 
that it's like completely unreasonable or out there that a parent would get to that place in that position. If that shit was really happening, you know, I can understand it. It's just like I said, actually being able to do it though. I don't know, man, that's pretty unfathomable. Right. Um, so yeah. Which is why I think the, that scene with the behemoth that crosses the road is just such a, it's necessary for the ending to work or else you, the entire audience is going to feel like half your friends did. Right. Where it's just like, Oh, it's reactionary. I don't buy it, but you have to give those characters a moment to, to squash their hope. Like if there's something that big out there and everything that we've encountered are essentially just the fucking fleas of what's really there. This is not our world anymore. Right. Right. Uh, you need something like that. And, you know, which is one of the reasons why I think that ending is so fucking brilliant is, is you, you understand and you, you have a main character who's made all the right decisions leading up to this point Mm -hmm. or so you think. And then especially with that lady on the truck at the end, uh, you go, she made the wrong decision and she got the fuck out of it with her kids, you know? And here's a guy, the lead character of your movie who makes what all the right decisions you know, leading up to this thing, he, he, you know, he makes the smart calls. He, he uses his heart, you know, and tries to help people and they end up dead. You know, it's like everything you, you, uh, by the end of the movie, you realize everything that David Drayton did was the wrong decision. But what's so brilliant about it is it's all the decisions you would make in that situation. If you're an empathetic person. Right. Right. So, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the reason why there's such a backlash to the ending is, is people are offended by like this character who they who made all the decisions they probably would have made in the scenario and, and he gets punished for it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely brutal, you know, and unforgiving yeah. and everything. And that's why, I mean, that's also part of why I like, cause I just think that makes it super ballsy, you know, like yeah, yeah. as a creative decision, like that's what appe- appealed to me the most about it at first, I think. Um, but yeah, also this was during the era, maybe towards getting towards the end of it, but like Thomas Jane was like, you know, one of the dudes I thought, or was going to be, and I was yeah. uh, pretty into that. I was a big Thomas Jane fan. And then, uh, you know, I don't really know, uh, what, what happened there, but I loved that show, the expanse. And he was on yeah. that for the first couple of seasons uh, in recent years. So he's still yeah. out there doing it, I guess. But yeah, I really liked him in this, but I liked him in pretty much everything I've seen him in. So, yeah. Which of the monsters presented in the mist would you be least hyped to deal with? <laughs> Probably the spider type ones. Yeah, I that's guess. what I'm fucking talking about. Yeah. Nailed it right off the yeah, bat. Fuck that. Human teeth and shit. Yeah, I don't here. want no part of that. Are you are, are you uh, are you scared of spiders? Uh, I'm not a fan of them. Um, I'm not going to like shriek and, you know, freak out if I see one in the house or anything. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't like creepy crawlies of any kind, like any, again, I don't just go out of my way to wantonly murder them all whenever they turn up or nothing, but like, (laughs) I don't like any kind of insect or or arachnoid, whatever the hell the word is, (laughs) arachnid, any of that type of shit at all. But weirdly, if they live in the water, I love them and think they taste great despite them still being... (laughs) kind of horrific to look at arguably those ones look even more terrifying if you try to remove the context of them being so tasty you know but they they don't bother me at all right because i like them with butter it's kind of weird but yeah all right so have you tried spiders with butter no i have not no 
there you go. I think we found a way to crack your there's phone. There's not a guy. fucking. There's not some buttered spiders. Too. There's not a paycheck in the world that would uh-uh. get me to eat a fucking spider. You could not. <laughs> there's no fucking way. Just ridiculous what you're suggesting. I know right some now. some people do eat like tarantulas, right? And mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm yeah. with you. No, I ain't doing it. Yeah, uh, it's kind of funny too because I actually like some so, people a lot of said people, buildings on fire. Right. Yeah. A, <laughs> yeah. Lot of pe- a lot of people think this is weird, but like I, my uh, friend Drew introduced me to eating kiwis without peeling them a while mm. back. Hmm. And uh, I prefer that, but I've heard people say like, you know, cause kiwis are kind of hairy that it's like biting into like a tarantula, you know, thorax hmm. or something. So you'd think I could get around it, but no, <laughs> not, not going to do it. Still got all them legs and shit. It's a little different than a fucking kiwi. So does no, the kiwi skin taste good? I like the texture of it. I feel like if you peel, I love the taste of kiwi, but I think if it's peeled, it's just kind of, it's just real soft. It's just mush, you know, and sure. leaving the skin on adds an element of texture that it does not otherwise oh, have. I recommend that's it. Interesting. Some so you're just like eating it. them like an apple? Yeah. You, you know, rinse them off like you would an apple sure. or whatever. And then, yeah, eat it exactly like you eat the two end. the two very ends are like, you know, uh, uh, I mean, what's the word? Very fibrous, so you can't really eat the the two poles sure. of it. But everything right. else, yeah, you just right. eat it like sound, an apple. I like, kiwi like a peach. too. I would fuck with that. I would because I'm a I'm a weird. I get a weird thing about texture too. Either I would love that or I would hate it. Mm-hmm. I'm probably predisposed to hate it now that you brought up this thing about tarantulas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. But uh, but I'm curious, and and I'm yeah. I would. I think I would try that. I recommend it. Also, yeah. if like the hair, the little hairs that kiwis do have, if that's like a major impediment, I don't, they have these gold kiwis. I think they're called California gold kiwis, in fact. Uh, but uh-huh. they're kiwis, but they don't have, they're smooth. And you can eat those the same way. So, yeah, uh, this is I, the kiwi, kiwi portion of the show. I, I got to tell you, uh, if I have to choose between a, a hair-free kiwi yeah. or, or one that has hair on it, I I think I prefer eating the hairy kiwi. You're going oh, full okay. bush, so Go to speak. It. Yeah, full bush. Yeah, yeah, full bush on the kiwis, definitely. <laughs> Yet another. I don't have a uh, follow up to that. Yeah, I don't have a follow up to that. So, uh, Eric, you need to hop in with the next question. <laughs> so, one thing that I'd like to bring up here at the end of things is uh, Ollie, the character Ollie, the bag boy, uh, who is Ollie Wampler, well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Not Ollie Wampler. That's, <clears throat> that part, that's a whole different thing. He wasn't writing graffiti. No, he and might he, not be writing graffiti, but maybe he was sucking dicks down at the maybe the, he was the store. Spell it what correctly. I heard. This Ollie would wouldn't <laughs> use the X shortcut. We're very well aware of that. Um, but uh, so they cast Toby Jones in this part in the movie, who is a very famous British actor, and he is just like. He's a good shot. He's the most empathetic. He's like the heart of this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I don't know. I, I, maybe we I, I just want to give him a little love and, and just kind of pick your guys's brains on on what you thought of this character uh, in the movie. Uh, um, yeah. Remind me, how does he die? He go. He makes it out to the the final run for the car, and then uh, some, one yes. of the big praying mantis motherfuckers comes out and like claws him, yeah, and like snips him in half. Yeah, I don't know if he's. Yeah, I guess he is. I don't know. He seems uh, the most even keeled of of most yeah. of them. Um, I think Tom Jane's obviously supposed to be the 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 heart of the thing, but I, I understand what you're. 
uh, what you're saying and what angle you're coming at this from. Um, but yeah, he's great. Toby Jones is great in everything he does. Yeah. He's a weird yes, little freak. He shows up. Right. He yeah. does weird shit. He can be funny. He can be creepy. It, you know, Toby Jones is here to do whatever you need Toby Jones to do. That's so <laughs> true. Yeah. He's one of those guys got a real good niche carved out and yeah, mm-hmm. he is always great. I, I, yeah. I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, you know, the bag boy at the grocery store or whatever is one of those people that everybody just kind of looks through or sure. looks past, doesn't think about, you know, they're invisible to the rest of us, someone in a position like that. And I think it's like highlighting the, uh, you know, the heroism inside of everyday people type of thing uh, right. with, with that guy, which I, yeah, I mean, I can dig that for sure. And there's a through line if you think about it for, because I've, I've made the thesis before and i actually wrote a piece for fangoria about this how the mist and is is like the other side of the coin of shawshank where shawshank is all about keeping hope and what happens when you don't lose the hope and and optimism and then the mist is what happens when you lose hope right and uh in what what do brooks and um red do when they leave prison they they're bag boys at uh, at a grocery store so oh, yeah. I, I wonder if that was a conscious thing on darabont's part where he was like i'm gonna make sure this is the most heroic motherfucker out there because you know the you know the i don't know like i just love the fact because they don't give the gun to the army guy you know, they don't give the gun to, you know, a, a, a military trained, you know, sharpshooter or hunter. Well, again, he's level headed, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> they get, and he's the one that ends up being the sharpshooter, this kind of squat, you know, unassuming, respectable, you know, gentleman, you know? It yeah, sounds almost I mean, I like think... you want to talk shit on Toby Jones. <laughs> You're like, this creature, this ghoul, yeah, this, this, this disgusting wretch wants yeah. to come in and be a fu- yeah um <laughs> no I'm, no i i love it i love the choice though sure 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 um i'm 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 mostly compelled by this conversation because i was a bag boy in a grocery store when <laughs> i was like 15 did y'all ever did y'all ever do that no not no. in a grocery store trey what I was your first job pumping gas at a full service gas station oh um, shit so kind of similar i feel and then when i got to and then I worked for the Clay County Highway Department, like weed eating and stuff like that. And uh, then in college, I worked in restaurants. I waited tables, bartended a little bit, God that damn. sort of thing. So a lot of like service industry stuff. But <laughs> yeah, but you like have- you said, you were 15. And I think like going back to what I was saying earlier, all that stuff I said about, oh, you look through them, they're invisible or whatever. And I feel like it's that's especially true for like a 45-year-old bag boy. Oh, you know yeah. I mean? right. Especially yeah. one who's kind of like, you know, got an interesting look to him or however you want to mm-hmm. put it. You know what yeah, I mean? Sure. Like he's just – it's definitely not the type of person anyone would expect to be like, you know, their hero without a cape that day or whatever. And that's what he ends up being, right. True. Right? which I do think is cool. I, I just wanted on record that I was an evil bag boy. Um, <laughs> we would, you would bag the groceries and this was still fuck. This would have been like mid nineties, you know? Um, and this was still in the era where the bag boy would take your groceries to your car for you mm-hmm. and you might get, yeah, a tip, right. you know, so they might pay you a negative $17,000 an hour, but you might get like mm-hmm. a $2 tip out of it here and there. You know, like that was the Faustian bargain you made with uh, the Albertsons in my area. Um, but I remember be- like 
there was a there was a guy that used to come into the grocery store I worked at who was a priest and he would come in in his full regalia and shit. Um, and then he would quote scripture all the way to the car and then he would get in his car immediately upon us both arriving there and let me load the groceries and you know whatever mm-hmm. and on more than one occasion i might have accidentally damaged his fruit uh on purpose <laughs> with like say yep. a jug of laundry detergent or something of that nature because i knew this guy wasn't going to tip he just wanted to right he wanted to give me the you know you work service industry you know how i you know, do motherfuckers a- would leave like tracts instead of tips yep. you know absolutely same goddamn was- thing <laughs> Right. Yeah, I was going to say, this is very much uh, ringing true to me as somebody who waited tables in, in mm-hmm. the South. And it w- all the servers knew that, like, the Sunday brunch shift Brutal. was, like, the bitch of the bunch because of the church crowd. Because they're, like, you, they judge you for not being at church. And it's like, well, somebody's got to serve you your fucking chicken tenders. You know what I mean? How do you expect that to work <laughs> right. if we were all at church? But they, like, judge you for not being at church. They're rude. They're shitty. And they don't tip. Well, if at all, yeah, you'll get left little pocket Bibles and shit as a tip. Yeah, all that stuff. And everybody knew it. It was very much a cliche, but a true one. So, yeah, Yeah, for real. You learn real quickly in the service industry, like, you know, various groups that might. And and, uh, some of those are not some of those uh, cliches are not true. I found Mm -hmm. um, over time, but the religious one. Like the, yeah, you know, uh, cranky old white folks coming in on yep. Sunday was the worst. That was the the worst shift you could have, except Absolutely. for Mother's Day on a Sunday. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, and then it was just like the Super Bowl of bad tipping every every that, fucking that's, time. That's a hundred percent spot on. Mother's Day was like the biggest day of the year uh, <laughs> for the restaurant I worked at. Yep, yep. Anywho. I don't think that was the answer you were looking for, Eric. Um, I think we've gotten <laughs> no, way it's all off good. track. Uh, but no, I, I mean, it, it kind of ties in with what, you know, kind of what I'm going for is that's just a Stephen King trope of having the, the blue collar, yeah. you know, people be the, the heroes. So the, the one great thing about the mist as a story, and this is a nice kind of rapper is that it is like all of the best of Stephen King in one location. You got the religious zealot, you know, bad guy, you got the, the commentary on society you got the monsters you got the character work you got an awkward sex scene in the in the novella yeah you know it's like mm-hmm. you, you have pretty much you got toby jones the best. you got toby jones in the movie yeah yeah uh, you know i don't know so it, it's the, the miss ends up being a great like potpourri you know of of stephen king yeah i agree completely and then yeah frank darabont adapting it you know and just yeah it's perfect uh perfect storm of king goodness uh, for me especially like i said multi-dimensional monsters i'm mm-hmm. in pretty much every time so yeah yeah agree with Love you it. on that okay. anyway trey uh tell us tell the people where they can find you where they can come see you all of all of those things yeah you can you can like find all my stuff just by you know looking up my name is t-r-a-e crowder i'm trey crowder on all the socials and trey crowder.com is where you can go to see my tour dates. If you want to come see me live, I'm going all over the place. I do it all the time. It's very fun. Hope you'll consider that. And are you yeah. uh, are you touring with uh, other comics? Uh, 
yes and no. I have a bunch of solo dates, but I also have group dates with the guys I mentioned earlier, Corey Forrester and Drew Morgan. We right tour is a, a group called Well Read. You can find all of those at TreyCrowder.com. And yeah, listen to Putting On Airs. That's my podcast with Corey, where two hillbillies discuss fancy people culture and <laughs> fancy people stuff. And then uh, also the Well Read podcast, me and those guys, we're just kind of shoot the shit in, in our own way. So yeah. That'll do it for me. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It was fun. Of course. Yeah. Anytime. And uh, I want to talk to you more. Like, uh, maybe it, uh, I might email you about this uh, cosmic monster thing, because I have some recommendations for you, if that's your Okay, uh, I'm down for that. Thing. Yeah. Uh, they, for sure. Uh, that's right in my wheelhouse. So, uh, okay. Anywho, thank you for being here. You're more than welcome to come back at any time. Uh, this was a blast. Thank you. Yeah. Loved it. Thanks, guys. Many thanks to Trey Crowder. I was so excited to get him on the show. Yeah. This is, uh, you might remember we had uh, Brett Terhune on a while back, um, who's kind of a similarly themed, like, comedian that rose to prominence in the the Trump era on social media. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I it didn't occur to me until we actually announced this episode. People they were like, both oh, did the mist. They both did the mist. Yeah, and maybe that's something in our minds where we're just like, ah, let's get these really funny people that like to skewer uh, religious right uh, folks from time to time to talk about this story that has one of the uh, craziest religious right uh, people ever. Yeah, there is there's something something worth examining there that it would yeah. happen twice, and also <laughs> like we weren't we didn't assign those titles. So that's uh, that is interesting. Yeah. And we've got another comedian on the show next week. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, very big fan of this guy. Uh, he came in and tackled a, a title that we have not discussed on the show before. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think we've we've kind of glanced at it here or there in in casual conversation. But this next week will be our first episode devoted entirely to the girl who loved Tom Gordon. Yeah, uh, which does not have an adaptation yet. Uh, apparently Lim Ramsey is working on one, but we've heard that for years. And yeah, George still... Romero almost made one a while back. True. Obviously a while back. He's not making one now. Um, that'd be a little difficult. Uh, but yeah, I am um, very happy to have Trey on the show. I'm very excited for people to hear next week's episode. Uh, a lot of good shit happening right now. Yeah, we got a lot of first timers in the month of February. I, I don't think we have one repeat guest this month if I'm if my schedule does not deceive me. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so we got some first timers here, baby. It's gonna be great. And then on uh the Patreon this Friday, our episode is going to be examining it's kind of the cinephile deep dive. We just recorded it. I feel a little bad for Scott, but because I feel like I talked way over him through a, a lot of this stuff. No, 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 not at all. On it. Not at um, all. But I brought in uh, an old friend and colleague, Mr. Jeremy Smith. He wrote on Ain't It Cool News with me for years under the name Mr. Beaks. And he is a huge De Palma nut. So we decided that maybe it would be a good idea to talk about auteurs who took uh, a stab at Stephen King adaptation. So this is a wide ranging conversation of not only a good director, but a director who would be called an auteur. So we even have to find ourselves defining what an auteur is and uh, not all of our definitions seem to match up either. So it's one of those kind of like deep movie nerd conversations where we talk about the legacy of King on film and specifically the top tier filmmakers, the Reiners, De Palma's, Flanagan's, 
uh, Cronenberg's Carpenters, Romero's whatnot that have tackled King's work over the years. So it's a heavily nerdy King conversation. But uh, if you're a movie geek, if you're a King geek, I think it's it's going to be a a very interesting one for you. So if you want to listen to that, all you got to do is head on over to patreon.com slash the kingcast and sign up for anything uh, in the six dollar tier or above and you will get access to that this friday well is there anything else we want to talk about well we should probably you know tell people that are coming into austin for our big stephen graham jones show this weekend yes uh just welcome to austin i hope we'll see we know that there are some people traveling in for it uh, we will be screening my print of Maximum Overdrive at the Alamo with Stephen Graham Jones doing a little talk there. And then afterwards at the highball, we will there's a ticketed event there where you the ticket essentially buys you a copy of the book and you get a live King Cash show for free. And then afterwards, you'll get uh, Stephen Graham Jones to sign your a copy of his newest book, Don't Fear the Reaper. So if you've heard Stephen night. on the show before, it's it's kind of. We're kind of guaranteed to to have a, a wild time, and I'm very excited to actually meet the student person. Yeah, me too. Me too. We should try to get dinner before uh, for the show. Oh yeah, it's a good call. We should probably start planning that because that's just coming up in like just a few days. Ugh, there's too much shit going on this week. <laughs> too just much, entirely shit too much stuff to deal with. And sure. on that note, I'm going to go deal with some more of it. But uh, thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Yep. See you next week, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Yeah.